Hey friends, it's John Odom. I do not know how it's possible, but it is the month of November. Today is November 8th, and our teaching text is Ephesians 4. I'm going to read verse 7 and then 11 through 15. It says, But to each of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Verse 11 says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth and love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Lord, as we reflect on scripture, would you illuminate it within our hearts? Would you make it alive with enabling power uh, that we may grow together to be the mature body of Christ in his name? Amen. Well, I recognize that as we open the Bible today, we're opening it in the context of our specific time and place in the world. And as people in this place, for us in the city of Tulsa, in the state of Oklahoma, as part of the United States of America, we have been through an emotional roller coaster of a week. This week has been in the context of this election cycle. This election cycle has been a part of this year in which we've dealt with COVID, with racial disharmony, with personal losses, with turbulence in the economy and jobs and schools. And um, even the fact that we're now holding church services outside is reflective of the kind of adaptability that's been required of all of us. Um, It's taken a lot of work to try to feel normal this year. And we've had to use this constant adaptation like the entire year. I mean, since the very beginning of March and that sense of nothing is normal uh, over time is proving to be disorienting and fatiguing and even uh, depressing. That sense of disequilibrium makes us feel less secure in the world. And I think that was reflected in how we saw people vote this year. One of the most interesting things to me about this presidential election was uh, the absence of a viable third party candidate. Now, there were there were tons of people, you know, other than the two major party candidates, but no one in, in very few states did a third party candidate get much more than a single percentage of the vote. In the last election, there was, you know, Jill Stein, who took a certain percentage of it. I remember growing up for me in the 90s, uh, it was always Ross Perot, who had kind of a comedic value to me. But what's the significance of having, uh, you know, no viable third party candidate? Well, in part, it reveals the crippling anxiety that many people in our country are carrying right now. Uh, Such polar extremes, when you see such polarity, like it's red or blue. You're Democrat or you're Republican. It's this or that. It's actually an indicator that chronic anxiety has taken root. In a healthy place, uh, there are a diversity of of ideas represented, um, but anxiety cannot tolerate diversity. And we had very, very clear lines drawn in most of the states uh, in our country. This either or thing showed the anxiety uh, at work. 
And I'm aware that that today and this week, I'm recording this on Thursday, so I don't know what will happen between Thursday and, and Sunday morning when this is shared. I'm aware that half of our church is either going to be deeply grieved by the results of the election or, you know, deeply relieved by the results of the election. And as you kind of survey the land, your relational landscape, I would just encourage you to practice some empathy and, and appreciate that the people with whom you disagree believe in their perspective just as sincerely as you do. And that to many, the election of the opposing candidate triggered or, or would have triggered genuine fear. And for me this week, you know, being aware of such decisions and the probability of emotional exhaustion, I was trying to zoom out in my mind this week and imagine, like, what is the role of the church in these kinds of cultural moments and conversations? What's the role of a pastor in these kind of moments? What's the role of, you know, the individual Christian in these kind of moments? And providentially, the Lord drew me to the assigned teaching text for today as we've been going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In the context of Ephesians chapter 4, part of which I've just read, Paul's making a case for the centrality of the church and the mission of God. The church, as Paul argued in Ephesians chapter 3, is meant to be a means through which the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. It's this lofty task that in the local church, as, as humble and backwards as they can be, and even as we can be, uh, God has this plan to display his wisdom to the world. And in view of such a task, Paul argued that there was a mandate for, for Christians to live worthily of their calling. That's what we talked about last week. And as we talked last week, we, we, we talked about the institution of following Jesus or institutions in general. That people tend to trust institutions like the church if we believe they're effectively shaping people uh, who will be trustworthy in fulfilling their mission. So I raised the example of Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A regularly does the fast food world better than anybody else. And we trust them as an institution because they're shaping their people and processes in such a way that they deliver on their ideals. We don't trust institutions, however, if they fail to shape people and fail to shape systems to accomplish the purposes of those institutions well. It's why folks you know, historically mistrust Congress. I gave the example of an online retailer who really blew uh, in order that I had placed and disappointed me. They lost my trust and my business. We said last week that large numbers of people have lost trust in the church because they no longer believe the church is effectively shaping people who live according to the church's ideals. You know, I think you could look at the Sermon on the Mount. You could look at the Bible as a whole. And while the struggle is being felt acutely right now, I would also argue that it's the task of every generation of Jesus followers to contend for the faithfulness and the maturity of the church. That's why I've said a verse, a key verse for us this year is Colossians 1, 28 and 29. It says, he is the one we proclaim, teaching and admonishing everyone uh, with all, oh, I forgot it with all power that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ to this end. I strenuously contend with all the power Christ so powerfully works within me. We, we have to, every generation has to contend for the maturity of the church. In our text today, Paul explains what God has done in Jesus to enable and to empower each generation to respond to the challenge of Christian faithfulness. 
verse seven uh, that I just read says this. It says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now, many tend to think about the word grace in terms of just like pardon or forgiveness, but uh, the Greek word for grace is charis. It's the same word used in charismatic, uh, charismata, and it just means a gift or empowerment. Uh, This has to do with spiritual gifts, which we see in verse 8 that we skipped. And then Paul goes on in the passage in verses 11 through 15 to name some, though not all, of the spiritual gifts. He mentions the apostolic gift. This has to do with that pioneering and missionary impulse of some in the church. Paul was an apostle. He had this apostolic calling. If you're going to start a new church in a new town, if you're going to start a new ministry, you need folks who have an apostolic gifting, who are willing to like be the first to break through the wall. He talked about prophetic gifting. Uh, Those who with a prophetic gifting are paying attention to God's voice and they're calling people back to faithfulness. Think about Isaiah or Jeremiah, the people who had this unique perspective. Everyone else was going this way, but they were paying attention. What is God doing in the middle of this and calling the people to faithfulness? The next gift Paul mentions is the gift of the evangelist, evangelistic gifts. And these are people who have this, this dispensation to share the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, and they want to see people come to place their faith in Christ. The next gift is uh, pastor or shepherding. And these, these are the folks you need to help maintain and develop healthy community. They, they care for the church, love the church, defend community. People, they're, they're, they have their eyes on the sheep. How are our people doing? And then finally, Paul mentions those with the teaching gift, which is helping people understand God's word, God's world. They're passing on uh, wisdom, instructing people to grow in in wisdom. We could go to uh, other places in the New Testament and look at some other gifts. Romans 12 uh, adds some other gifts. Prophecy, uh, I already mentioned that one. Serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, mercy as a gift. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 mentions some other, other ones, different ones. Wisdom faith, words of knowledge. This is like God gives you information that you wouldn't have known otherwise. Healing, miraculous powers, discernment, tongues, like speaking in tongues, Acts 2 kind of thing, interpretation of tongues. Paul says in this passage in Ephesians that Jesus gave all of these gifts to the church. And this is not just a, a different way of describing temperament or personality. He, he's actually making a case that these are a unique form of empowerment given by God. Those who trust in Christ are given unique abilities or graces. And there's no hierarchy like prophecy is the absolute best and, you know, hope you didn't get mercy or administration or something. It's not like that. There's no hierarchy. Just like all the different component parts of our body, all of the spiritual gifts uh, are are needed. All of them are crucial. It reminds me of that scene in Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Father Christmas shows up to give gifts to the Pevensey kids. And so to Peter, he gives the sword and the shield. And to Susan, he gives the bow and arrow uh, and and the horn to call for help. And to Lucy, he gives the dagger and the little uh, crystal cordial for healing. Uh, Each one of us in the body of Christ have been given by God a different gift or mix of gifts. Churches tend to get off track in conversations about spiritual gifts when they treat these gifts as an end in themselves, like a cul-de-sac that you're meant to drive down and park. The gifts are actually given for a particular purpose, and Paul gives it to us here in verses 12 and 13. 
says, Christ gave gifts to his people so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God's vision in giving spiritual gifts to the church is that the whole church may be united and mature. There's not meant to be the spiritually elite. The vision is that we've all reached this telos, this point of maturity, completion. That's what Jesus was getting at in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect or be fully mature as your heavenly father is, is fully mature. Aware of our tendency to drift toward disunity and immaturity and cognizant of the stakes of the mission of the church and the world, Jesus gave spiritual gifts to those who trust in him to be used for the purpose of edifying, encouraging, and equipping each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, to grow in unity and maturity. So to my original questions, what is the role of the church in these kinds of cultural moments? What is the role of the pastor? What is the role of the individual Christian? I would say this. Uh, What's on us in these moments is to use our gifts to encourage and equip each other to move toward unity and maturity. To use the gifts that God has given us to encourage and equip each other to move toward unity and maturity. Paul actually underscores this point in verses 14 and 15 when he says, if we do this, we will no longer be infants, babies. Instead, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Christ. If you and I use the gifts that God has given us to challenge and encourage and equip each other to move toward unity and maturity, we will, we will reflect the mature body of Christ. He says, if we do this, we will not be infants. Uh, Emily and I are, thank God, expecting uh, our fourth baby. We're going to welcome an infant back into our home when Emily uh, gives birth in February. And one of the, the defining qualities of infants is their inability to take responsibility for themselves. Uh, everything has to be done for them. They're just these helpless little blobs that you have to care for, especially when they're really little. And as, as my kids have gotten older, you know, there are times where I've lost my temper as a parent and, and every now and then I have these moments of clarity with, you know, a given kid and I'm like, oh yeah, they're wearing disposable underwear because they can't control when they pee or poop. That's the stage of development they're in right now. And it gives me this sense of like de-escalating or, or lowering my expectations for them because I remember where they are developmentally, just even in their bodies. But even if a baby is immature now, healthy parenting means slowly increasing the responsibility and the expectations that you put on that child over time appropriately. As a kiddo is really small, they should receive tons of comfort. But as they get older, you may like we actually need to decrease the comfort and increase the challenge. That's a recipe for growth over time decreasing comfort, increasing challenge. If a kid is always comforted, but never put in a position to be challenged, um, their, their growth to maturity is necessarily going to suffer. 
if they're always challenged and they're never comforted, they're going to lose heart and give up. The kid's going to have no self-confidence. You need both with a movement toward more responsibility on the child, greater challenge. In a similar way, healthy pastoring or healthy church membering requires both a level of comfort and a level of challenge. If it's all comfort and it's all affirmation, nobody is going to grow. The church will turn into a country club full of whiny babies who just want to have their needs met by somebody else. Some of you are like, I used to attend that church. Um, But if on the other hand, it's all challenge, people are going to feel browbeaten. Community won't develop and we'll all carry intense shame. And some of you like have the bumps and bruises having been a part of those kind of churches where it was all challenge. The Apostle Paul gives us this vision of a community that humbly and lovingly uses its collective gifts to challenge one another, to take responsibility to grow in maturity. There's comfort and there's challenge, and the challenge increases over time so that, as Paul said, we will grow to become in every respect uh, the mature body of Christ. Comfort and challenge. Now it's worth pointing out a key insight into all of this is that comfort alone rarely helps a person grow. It's challenge that it gives us the opportunity to increase our capacity. When you're lifting weights, it tears muscles, yes, but it also gives them the chance to expand. One of my favorite mad scientists, the psychologist and rabbi Edwin Friedman famously drew this simple formula as a fraction that demonstrates the power of a community taking responsibility for its growth toward maturity. And so in the numerator position in the fraction, the top number on the fraction, he wrote an H and an E that refers to the hostility of the environment the hostility of an environment. And this has to do with like the number and the strength of stressors. These are all of the things that it could possibly go wrong. And the numerator, the H-E, hostility of environment. At the bottom of the fraction, in the, in the denominator, he had R-O, and that, that corresponds with the response of the organism. So on the top, there's the problem, but on the bottom, there's what are you going to do about it? Thinking about these two, the hostility of an environment and the response of the organism, if a person gives all of their energy to diagnosing, discussing, and analyzing the problems or the hostile environment that they're in, only analyzing it, they may get really articulate about what's wrong, uh, but they'll still be stuck in that toxic place if all they do is give their energy to thinking about describing, defining the hostility of their environment. Tell me if you've ever been in this situation. Uh, You have a boss who does everything wrong and you go to the meeting with the boss and walking in, you know how terrible it is. The meeting turns out to be just as terrible as you thought. And when the meeting is over, you get with your colleague and you go to the meeting after the meeting and the two of you at length commiserate and talk about how terrible the meeting was. Uh, A frustrating but perhaps familiar situation to many of you. Rarely, if ever, does a situation in which you only diagnose a problem naturally improve. Diagnosis alone can lead to feelings of helplessness and victimhood. 
people in this situation may want comfort or commiseration. Misery loves company, but comfort alone is not going to improve this situation. That's it with a focus on the hostility of your environment. But if instead a person shifts their focus from the hostility of the environment to their own response to that hostility, everything can go really differently. A whole wide world opens up if you focus on your response to that hostility. This is what uh, the famous author Viktor Frankl was getting at in his work, Man's Search for Meaning. He was trying to understand why did some people give up in concentration camps and other people found a way to make it? Why were some people able to persevere? Some were made to be victims. Um, some, some refused to be made victims. And it's the response of the organism that can make all the difference in the world. So getting really practical, uh, getting us to shift, to focus on our own response. What am I thinking about right now? Well, I want to just like uh, acknowledge and treat as legitimate. I want to validate that it is kind of a scary time to be in the world right now. That's true. Half the country seems to dislike the other half of the country. Uh, it's difficult to have a civil conversation with anyone about weighty topics. Congress appears to be stuck. The system is broken. COVID is still a thing. You could fill in the blank with any number of the personal challenges that you've been facing. All of that is legitimately difficult. And I just want to say, God be with you. Hope that God will comfort and strengthen you in the middle of that. So there's comfort. But here's the challenge. What are you going to do about it? How can you take and how can I take responsibility for our contribution to the world's issues? How can you do your part, focusing on the response of the organism, how can you do your part to resolve to be emotionally and relationally and spiritually healthy? How can you do your part to foster good and civil connections with people with whom you disagree in your family, in our church, in your neighborhood? How can you shift your focus from the hostility of the environment to your own response, taking responsibility for yourself in the middle of such hostility? And think about what we've been talking about in Ephesians chapter four. Consider how God has uniquely gifted you like of all the things that he could have done, God gave you, you this skill set, this charismata. How, how can you use those gifts that God has given you to be a resource in our community to help equip and encourage us to grow toward maturity? Are you an encourager? Has God given you the spiritual gift of encouragement? Take responsibility for flexing that muscle. We desperately need all the encouragers we can get our hands on right now. Do you have the gift of faith? I mean, are you just able to like, you have the gall to ask God to, to do stuff, to move in power in people's lives. Pray in faith over your friends who are losing hope or, or the hostility of their environment has just uh, beaten them into the ground. Uh, are, you, are you an administrator? Do you have the gift of administration? How can you use your gifts of administration to leverage all of the other gifts in the church? Do you have the gift of discernment? Well, speak up about how you sense the Holy Spirit leading the church. Do you have apostolic giftings? Well, pioneer the way for us to make inroads for the kingdom in the city of Tulsa. 
I want to say that the longer we give all of our energy toward just wringing our hands about what's wrong, the longer we will stay frustrated. And the longer we merely offer one another comfort, the longer we will collectively stay immature. Paul said that instead of just pats on the back, we are to speak the truth in love so that we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Christ. Friends, I want you to listen to me. We are people in whom the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells. We belong to a community through faith that possesses every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have been given a spirit of love and power and self-control. We are free from condemnation. We are children of God. We are heirs with Christ. We are those made in God's image. We are not victims. We are agents. And together we're entrusted with this task and mission of living together as a colony of heaven, as an embassy of the kingdom. So let's quit bellyaching about what's wrong. There have always been things wrong in every generation of Christians. And let, but let's take responsibility for embodying together a better vision, shifting from endless diagnosis and hand-wringing about the hostility of the environment, everything that's wrong, and moving toward taking responsibility for our, our response, our reaction to what's going on in the world, moving from criticism, which we can all do in our first nature, in our sleep very well, toward creation and co-creating with God a better future. For my part, I am resolved to doing my part to thrive as long as COVID goes on. I am resolved that Emily and I and our family are going to creatively and joyfully figure out how to flourish together in this crazy world in which we live. I'm resolved to doing all I can to lead our church in such a way that we, we over the long term, are on a trajectory toward maturity. I refuse to allow what happens in D.C. to dictate if I have a good day or a bad day. I will invest in my friendships. I will care for my body. I will seek the kingdom of God. And I will look with hope and anticipation to see all the good things that God is doing in our world. There's a passage in, in, in First or Second Chronicles, I can't recall which, says the eyes of the Lord are roaming throughout the earth, looking for hearts that are fully his, that he can strengthen. I long and I resolve to be a person who in increasing measure is making my heart more fully his, resolving to be well, to do good, to co-create with Christ, to be a part of this community that together is on a movement, on a trajectory to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. Life is hard. Our challenges are very, very real. We have a hostile environment for the gospel and yet also we have the ability to respond, to choose how we will be, how we will behave, how we will leverage our, our, our resources, our relationships for the good of the kingdom in the city of Tulsa. Let's make this resolution together. Let's pray. Jesus, I mean, I just say this all is really hard. And we need the work of your Holy Spirit to just like generate in us enough will to make a resolution. Like, like it's so hard to just talk ourselves into being healthy. We can't do it. 
So would you just generate in our hearts an awareness of the capacities you've given us? Help us to move in our own thinking from victims to agents. Help us to move from wallowing in our frustrations to taking responsibility for what we can manage from us down. Help us to not give in to being overwhelmed by all of the issues on the news, but instead look with open eyes and with a spirit of readiness and adventure uh, to the opportunities in front of us on our street and in our work and in our city, places you've uniquely positioned us to embody uh, the, the spirit of God to, to bring the kingdom of God to bear in our place and time. Pray that you'd stir and do good work in us, Lord Jesus, helping us move to a position of responsibility and growing together, encouraging and equipping each other uh, to become more mature in Christ. Come Holy Spirit, come Lord Jesus, do the work that we cannot do, but help us to do the work that you've given us to do with all responsibility. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God loves you, friends. See you around.